Well, good morning again. Thank you for all your prayers. I am feeling much better. My wife got sick first, and then like the good wife she is, she always shares with me. <laughs> and I got sick. And uh, so um, let me just say that uh, next week, God willing, we will continue our study in John's Gospel. But this morning I have something a little different. Um, I guess unless you've been off the planet for a week, um, visiting Mars or something, uh, you all know that this past Tuesday, May 24th, at roughly 11.40 in the morning, a lone gunman uh, walked into the uh, Robb Elementary School there in Uvalde, Texas, and started shooting students and teachers. When a Borat, uh, excuse me, a Bortac agent, Bortac stands for Border Patrol, a tactical unit, when a Bortac agent finally shot and killed the 18-year-old suspect, whose name we found out later was Salvador Ramos, almost an hour later he was shot after entering the building. Uh, at that point, 19 children, ages 7 to 9, and two teachers were uh, laid dead. It was very reminiscent of another school shooting that took place almost 10 years ago. That one took place on December 14th of 2012. Uh, the school was Sandy Hook Elementary School, and the shooter was 20-year-old Adam Lanza. Uh, Lanza started the day by shooting and killing his mother in their home in Newtown, Connecticut, then went to nearby Sandy Hook Elementary School where she worked, shot out a window, entered the building, and began to fire indiscriminately, killing, well, the report came in that um, by the time it was all done, 18 children and six adults were found dead in the school. Two more children died later in the hospital, and uh, the total of those that were uh, killed were 27, including the shooter who um, was found dead at the scene with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He used uh, two nine-millimeter nine handguns to carry out that massacre. Of course, the first school massacre, I think most of us, I'm, not, I'm sure it wasn't the first in our nation's history, but for most of us, when we think of school shooting, school massacres, I think most of us go back to uh, the one in Columbine, Columbine um, High School shooting of April of 1999, uh, that seemed to be the one that kind of started this rash of school shootings we're currently living through. Uh, the shooters uh, in that incident were two 12th grade students uh, named Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold who murdered 12 students and one teacher while injuring 23 others before killing themselves. Well, I mean, we can't forget that just four years ago, I think it's still pretty fresh in our minds, the shooting that took place in Parkland, Florida at the Douglas High School where 19-year-old Nicholas Cruz killed 17 while injuring 17 others. The AP or the Associated Press reports that from Columbine High School to Robb Elementary School, School shootings in the U.S. have accounted for 169 deaths and, of course, many, many others that were wounded. And, guys, that doesn't even take into consideration the other mass shootings in our country that weren't school-related. 
The worst mass shooting in American history occurred on October 1st of 2017. On that date, a lone gunman named Stephen Paddock, a 64-year-old man from Mesquite, Nevada, opened fire from his 32nd floor room of the Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino in Las Vegas. One reporter said, and I quote, Paddock unleashed a rapid fire barrage of bullets down on the crowd attending the Route 91 Harvest, Harvest Music Festival on the Las Vegas Strip, sending a crowd of, of about 22,000 terrified concertgoers running for their lives, unquote. By the time that it was all over, Paddock had killed 60 while injuring 500 before killing himself. And, um, well, just a couple weeks ago, uh, May 14th, a teenager opened fire uh, at shoppers going into and coming out of the uh, top supermarket in Buffalo, New York, killing 10, wounding three, all African-Americans. Now, because of these shootings, I felt led by the Lord to do a special message entitled, entitled America, How Did We Get Here? How did we get here? Some scream, the problem is guns. There's too many guns, you know. We have to make getting guns a lot harder for people. As if it, as if it isn't hard in some towns already that have incredible shootings every year, like Chicago and New York and L.A. But they say that's it. That's the, that's the thing. We have to, in fact, let's just get rid of the Second Amendment. Filmmaker Michael Moore said that just the other day. And he's not alone. Let's just get rid of the Second Amendment. First of all, I think that's a simplistic solution to a complicated problem. Because the answer to bringing down gun violence in America isn't to take away guns from good and law-abiding people. As, because as someone has said, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy or gal with a gun. Secondly, a study was recently done. This, I thought this was very interesting. A study was recently done by the General Social Survey, the GSS, and the National Opinion Research Center, or the NORC, that found that since the late 1970s, the percentage of homes with a gun has fallen from approximately 50% to 32%. One reporter from the Associated Press said, and I'm quoting, the number of Americans who live in a household with at least one gun is lower than it's ever been, end quote. And yet while the number of homes that contain a firearm has decreased since, 19, since the 1970s, the number of mass shootings has dramatically increased. Now there's various ideas about why. Let me just say one thing from the study we just cited. I think one of the inescapable conclusions is that there isn't a direct correlation between the number of firearms that Americans own and the number of mass murders that are committed. In other words, the answer to gun violence isn't to take away all the guns from law-abiding Americans simply because, listen, some abuse them and use them to hurt others. I mean, think about this. Every year in America, knives are used to kill more people than guns. Did you realize that? Google it. Knives are used to kill more people than guns every year 
in America. So does that, does that mean the government should confiscate all the knives? Because some misuse them and, uh, and in a way that harms others? You know, they did that in London. I don't know if it's still going on. But because you can't own a gun in London, people were killing each other with knives. So they outlawed knives. And again, I don't know if it's still in, in practice, but, you know, okay, then you outlaw knives. Well, hammers are used quite a bit to kill, it's outlaw hammers. What about automobiles, right? All the people that use automobiles, misuse, get behind the wheel drunk, you know, irresponsibly use automobiles. Should we ban all, you know how many people die from automobile accidents every year? Let's just ban automobiles. I mean, come on, folks. Let's think clearly. Some people have a knee-jerk reaction, and they don't really think clearly about this. <laughs> the idea being pushed by liberals, and including President Biden, that AR-15s, and I'm pretty sure everyone in this room knows what an AR-15 is. If you don't, it's a rifle. It's a rifle. And liberals, including the president, claim that AR-15 should be outlawed because of all the people killed by them every year. That's ridiculous, first of all. Again, according to the FBI's own homicide data, more people are killed by knives and hammers in our country every year than are killed by rifles of all kinds. Say, how much more? Seven times more. Others say, well, the problem is an increase in mental illness. That's the problem. That's what's causing all the gun violence in our country. Well, I'm sure there's some truth to that. Although I believe this, again, is a somewhat simplistic solution to a complicated problem. I came across an article um, a few years ago that was written by a, a psychiatrist named Dr. Dale Archer. I'd like to read some of what he said in that article. He said, and I quote, according to the 2010 FBI crime data, since 1980, single victim killings have dropped by more than 40%. While that's good, very good news, there's a new sobering trend. Mass murders are on the rise. This New York Times article researched the frequency of mass murders. It found that during the 20th century, there were about one to two mass murders per decade until 1980. Then for no apparent reason they spiked, with nine during the 80s, 11 during the 1990s, and since the year 2000 there have been at least 26, including the massacre in Aurora, Colorado. But this was written a few years ago. I did a little research. The number's up around 45 now. 45 mass shootings since 2000 to 2022. He goes on to say the number one predictor of violence is by far alcohol and or drug abuse. Severe mental illness in and of itself was not a predictor. A 1988 study in the archives of general psychiatry found that patients discharged from psychiatric facilities who did not abuse alcohol or illegal drugs had a rate of violence no different from uh, than that of their neighbors in the community. As for gun control, the studies are all over the map, from anecdotal reports to, definite, to definitive studies from the NRA to the Brady campaign. Each side uses mass murder to further their cause. 
I won't bother to give you examples of the numerous reports, studies, and opinions. However, the gun laws are relatively unchanged over the past few decades. Over this period of time, some states um, have stricter gun laws, while others have become more relaxed. Regardless of how you feel about gun control in general, there is no correlation between gun control strictness and mass murder. So what is fueling the spike in mass murder? What is different today versus 50 years ago that can explain all these murders from 2000 to the present day as opposed to one or two per decade from 1900 to 1980? I'll stop there because the doctor, Dr. Archer, goes on to say he really doesn't know why there's an increase in mass murders in our country. He suggests it could have something to do with all the violence on TV and in the movies, in video games, and in the music that this younger generation listens to, but he really doesn't have a reason, doesn't understand, uh, doesn't know what's going on, why there's a sudden increase in all these mass shootings. One of the things he does point out, though, that I wanted to read to you is that there really isn't a direct correlation between mass murders and mental illness. I'm not saying that, uh, that you know, no mass murder was ever committed by somebody that was, that was genuinely uh, had mental illness. I'm just saying it doesn't seem that there's a direct correlation, as Dr. Archer points out. Let me just say this, and you can agree with me or not. I believe that demonic possession or at very least demonic oppression, is being misdiagnosed much, if not most of the time, as mental illness in our nation. Again, that's not to say that there are, isn't mental illness, uh, and not every um, mentally ill person diagnosed as being mentally ill is really demon-possessed. I'm just saying, I believe that Many people are being diagnosed as mentally ill when they're really demonically influenced or possessed. Do you know that the shooter in Uvalde, Texas, was making these outrageous threats uh, months before he, was, he committed this atrocity? And so they, uh, the word came to the school or to the authorities. They arrested him and forced him to go for a psych eval which he passed, and they let him go. They had to. How did he pass the psych eval? Because he wasn't mentally ill. I believe he was demonically possessed. Look, you can disagree with me. I'm not an expert on mental illness by any means. So if I'm saying anything wrong, you come up and correct me. When you're mentally ill, and I realize there's different forms, different stages of mental illness, but when I think of somebody who's severely mentally ill, I, don't, I see somebody that has a hard time functioning. Some of these don't know where they're at. They don't know where they live. They forget their name even. This guy carefully and methodically planned out this massacre. Most of these mass murders were planned out weeks, if not months, in advance. Very, very um, intricately planned out. Now, somebody could say, well, that, that's possible with mental illness. Okay. But to me, that seems like more of a... Of a a demonic influence than a mental illness. And that's just my opinion. Look, as mental illness has been around in our country from its inception, as have guns. 
And yet mass murders are a relatively recent phenomenon. So what is going on? I believe, and again, this is my opinion, I believe it's all linked to the gradual drifting away from God and his word that we have seen in our society over the past, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years. Do you realize that Christian pollster George Barna has noted that today we have the lowest church attendance by young people in our nation's history? I mean, make no mistake about it, American Christianity is on the decline while violence of all kinds is on the rise. But why? Well, again, there's a lot of opinions. Uh, one TV commentator last week, I thought, summed it up fairly well. Let me read to you what he said. He said, and I quote, firearm laws were weak before the 1970s, and only in recent decades have young men entered schools and supermarkets for the purpose of killing the innocent. What's changed is the culture. The nuclear family is collapsing before our eyes. Church attendance is at an all-time low. Kids' brains are being warped by social media. And we forced our kids into lockdowns, isolating them from socializing with each other and pushing them deeper into video games and wicked Internet sites. Sports aren't mandatory anymore. Drugs are everywhere. The media and, uh, the media and entertainment industry fosters a sick thirst for fame and notoriety. And there, there's just a general lack of respect for human life. We're missing all the ingredients for a healthy country. If you want to stop the next mass shooter, we need to approach this problem completely differently, end quote. Well, I agree with everything he said. But before we can do that, approach this problem from a different perspective, we have to properly diagnose the problem itself. Folks, I do believe there is a direct, there is a direct correlation between us as a nation having turned our backs on God in the light of his word and the darkness that is now upon us. As we have embraced spiritual and moral, moral darkness as a culture, we have opened the door and invited into our country demonic forces that were previously kept at bay by our love for and obedience to God and his word. And the result is that we have become a dark culture that can't seem to get enough evil and violence and sexual perversion in our entertainment. And because of it, something wicked has taken captive the minds of our people, especially our young people. It's an evil darkness that has settled over our country like a shroud and is transforming it into something we are not going to be able to recognize soon. David Capellian, who is a Christian uh, author, writer, um, commentator, in his book, The Marketing of Evil, Why Today's Youth Culture Resembles Sodom and Gomorrah, said this, and I quote, History is full of times and places when something, call it a spirit if you wish, sweeps over a particular society. This something is drawn as into a vacuum into societies, into societies that have lost their way and have hearkened to the voice of deceitful leaders and philosophies. During the mid-20th mid century, a, malevol a malevolent spirit swept over Germany, leading to unspeakable crimes being perpetrated 
against millions of Jews and other quote-unquote undesirables in the name of progress. In the late 1970s, the demonic spirit, spirit of Marxist cleansing swept through Cambodia like a raging wildfire, resulting in the brutal deaths of perhaps two million people. And today we see the worldwide spread of a, of a maniacal jihad suicide cult that is attracting literally millions of Muslims. Well now, it's just my imagination, uh, it's just my imagination, or is there something about today's celebratory piercing and tattooing of the body? Now, I said to first service, I'm not against Christians getting tattoos. He's talking about the culture apart from Christ, okay? So just, you know, I'm not impugning every Christian who has a tattoo. We're talking about the culture, though, all right, in general, the culture apart from Jesus Christ. He said, you know, maybe it's my imagination, or is there something about today's celebratory piercing and tattooing of the body and the free sex that permeates this culture that literally evokes the spirit of Sodom and Gomorrah? It's as though the rebellious spirit of reprobate pagan civilizations of the past were being tapped into, dare I say, channeled by today's pop culture. In past eras, parents were very imperfect, if parents were very imperfect or even corrupt, their children still had a reasonable chance of growing up straight, of growing up normal, since the rest of society still more or less reflected Judeo-Christian values. The youngster could bond to a teacher, a minister, mentor, or organization that could uh, provide some healthy direction and stability. But today, because of the near-ubiquitous corruption out there, if parents fail to properly guide and protect their children, the kids get swallowed whole by the child-molesting monster we call culture, end quote. Of course, you remember what the psalmist said, which becomes very relevant to our culture today. Psalm 11, verse 3, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Think about that. And the devil has been, the devil knows scripture. And he knows if he can destroy the foundation upon which this nation was built, God and his word, he can bring the whole thing down. I remember an article that I read in the 80s. And it impacted me so much I actually kept it. And I'd like to read it to you right now. It's entitled, Is the Great American Dream Turning into a Nightmare? The author had this to say about our heritage as a nation. He said, and I quote, God has showered upon America 200 years of blessings. As she acknowledged and obeyed her creator, God elevated her from infancy to a place of worldwide leadership. He has allowed her to enjoy unprecedented wealth, freedom, and influence. America has led the world in medical and technological advancement. The nation has pioneered in space, pushed back the frontiers of science, and given its citizens the world's highest standard of living. With grateful and humble hearts, Americans once honored the God who granted her blessings and freedoms. But slowly, almost imperceptible, almost imperceptibly, she began to attribute her blessings not so much to God, but to man. Forgetting to acknowledge the power that hath made and preserved us as a nation, her citizens began to congratulate themselves on their own achievements, to celebrate man, 
while relegating God to the back seat. And as a result, the God of secular humanism began to infiltrate all of her institutions. Wallowing in materialism, self-centeredness, and pride, many Americans decided that, you know, they really didn't need God after all. Some began to tamper with God's absolute standards and to tolerate what they would never have allowed before in their own lives or in society around them. That which God says is never right could sometimes be right, depending on the situation. Courts that had once legislated, legislated against immorality began to grant freedom to every man to do that which was right in their own eyes, right out of the book of Judges. Lines of right and wrong blurred. In time, all sorts of ungodly behavior became acceptable, even admired. Americans no longer were shocked. Eyes grew accustomed to the dark. Few citizens rose up in outrage. When God fades from a nation's conscience, one can justify almost anything, end quote. And aren't we living that out today? What did the Democrats used to say about abortion? Safe, legal, and rare? Now it's celebrated. It's lifted up as a virtue. That's how sick a society we are. The author goes on then to talk about how Americans have tried to camouflage what God calls sin with new terminology. You know, that's how they do it, right? The leftist masters at word games. They know how to use language. Probably better than we conservatives. They know how to take something evil and spin it to sound something like something good. So the author goes on to talk about how Americans have tried to camouflage what God calls sin with new terminology to soothe our conscience and justify our actions. God said, thou shalt not kill. But Americans gave murder a new name, a woman's right to choose, and indifferently abort a million and a half babies a year, 50 million since Roe v. Wade. Well, this was back in the 80s. The number is closer to 63 and a half million. Folks, if the blood of righteous Abel cried out to God from the ground after he was murdered by his brother, what does the sound of 63.5 million aborted children sound like in the ears of God? And is there any way we can escape the judgment that is coming? I think there is. But we sure deserve it. My prayer is, God, we deserve judgment, but please show us mercy. He goes on. God calls it drunkenness. We call it alcoholism, a social disease. God calls it sodomy. We call it homosexuality, an alternative lifestyle. God calls it perversion. We call it pornography, adult entertainment. God calls it immorality, but we, as a nation, call it the new morality. And then he concludes by saying, America once legislated against those things that God said to be wrong. But gradually we began to tolerate, then accept, then condone openly, and even promote that which was once unthinkable. The perversion and degradation that once made us blush are now flaunted before the eyes of a nation that was conceived in the fear of God. It has happened little by little, right before our eyes, not because someone forced it on us, but seemingly because we did not care. We just didn't care, end quote. 
Folks, there's a lot of blame to go around. But listen, judgment begins where? At the house of God, right? And I think a big part of the problem is that the church, which is to be the moral conscience of a society, has become infested with false shepherds who are too busy entertaining the goats and not feeding the sheep. George Barna has recently said that only 50% of pastors of evangelical churches hold a biblical worldview. Let that sink in for a second. We're not talking about mainline Christian denominations. Catholic Church, Methodist Church, Lutheran Church. No, no, no. These are evangelical pastors and churches. And Barna said during a recent survey that only 50% of pastors who stand in evangelical pulpits have a Christian or a biblical worldview. That's a mind blower. And that being the case, I think that very few of any of these false shepherds teach the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. Faith, And the one I have in mind that comes to mind, first of all, is the reality of hell. I, I believe a lot of what's being done in our society, and again, you can disagree with me, is because pastors are not teaching the whole counsel of God anymore. Many of them are not teaching the reality of hell. I mean, in today's church, very few pastors preach on hell anymore. Now, this is mostly due, I think, to the fact, uh, to the fact that in an attempt to fill seats in the sanctuary, got big buildings, got to bring in a lot of people. We got to pay for these amenities, right? Got the Starbucks outside. You know, got uh, the uh, you know the playground that rivals uh, Disneyland uh, by the children's ministry. I'm not saying that's evil. But for so many churches, that become, that's become the focus. You know, I, I, you know if, you, if you can have those things and not let them become the focus, great. But again, I think that too many pastors have these sanctuaries they have to pay for. And so uh, they have to keep things, at least they think so, they have to keep things positive to fill those seats every Sunday. And so they've almost exclusively focused on the love of God while neglecting the righteousness, holiness, and justice of God in their sermons. As one commentator said, I quote, the result is that almost everyone today views God as a benevolent, gray-haired, grandfatherly old gentleman who is too kind and loving to ever send anyone to such a horrible place like hell, end quote. Consequently, we, are now, we now live in a society where there is no fear of God. What is the fear of the Lord? Which, by the way, is the beginning of wisdom, right? What is the fear of the Lord? To hate evil. But ultimately, it's to realize that, you know, as an unbeliever, if I don't get my life right with God, who loves me and died to save me, I'm going to spend eternity in a place apart from God, a place called hell. There's no parole. There's no living out your sentence. It's eternal. But we live in a culture now because the devil has managed to strip away the reality of hell from the preaching of pulpits in America. So now we are living in a culture where there's no fear of God, and the result is lawlessness. 
Oh, yeah, lawlessness in cities and towns. Well, I'm talking primarily about lawlessness against the Word of God. Lawlessness that uh, deals with a blatant disregard and disrespect for God's laws in His Word. In an article that was written by William Murray, William Murray is the son of the late Madeline Murray O'Hare, the famous atheist who got uh, prayer thrown out in public schools back in the early 1960s, right? Do you know that William was nine at the time she got on this crusade? And I've seen videos of William as a nine-year-old with his mother because she used him because, you know, he came home and said, yeah, we're, we're starting the day with prayer. How terrible. As an atheist, she was furious. And so using her son, who was a student in the school, she used him to, you know, bring about this whole movement where it finally resulted in prayer being banned in public schools. The irony is God touched William's heart when he became a man. He got saved. William Murray is a strong Christian today. And in the article that he wrote, an article he wrote just after the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre, he said that a large part of the blame for violence in society needs to be laid at the doorstep of the church in America. Let me read to you uh, what he said. Now, understand, Murray is not one of these, um, well, win friends and influence people kind of guys. He's one of those old school preachers. Okay, I'm not saying he's a pastor, but he does preach. He's got a pulpit because people know him, and he's invited to speak at a lot of churches, right? And uh, as I read this, you might be going, oh, that sounds harsh. That's really harsh. But understand, what seems harsh today, just a few decades ago, was standard preaching in America's pulpits. I'll, I'll read it to you. Make your own decision. Murray said, and I quote, If an individual is not afraid of the wrath of God, it is impossible to cause him to fear the justice of the state. The killing of young children at their school will be linked by many pundits to the availability of guns. Still others will blame the violent act on some pathology or childhood trauma. Some may even blame the Hollywood culture with its disregard for humanity in which human bodies are seen being di uh, dissected nightly on network TV. Virtually no one will call what occurred in Newtown, Connecticut an act of evil. He said Adam Lanza was a devil worshiper. Who knew that? I'm convinced if you would were able to get into the backgrounds of most of these shooters, you would find a demonic component. Devil worshipers or into uh, black magic or something else. He said, probably not a single sermon will be preached in which the perpetrator is predicted to have begun his eternal punishment for his crime after judgment by, ju by a just and holy God. A splintered American church driven by pew-hungry, feel-good messages will offer assurances that eternal peace awaits all those who died, including the shooter. The words hell and sin will very likely not be used in any sermon associated with the massacre. Yes, he said there is societal blame, ridiculous privacy rules that allow the mentally ill to conceal their condition from schools, employers, and gun shop owners is just one. 
The constant self-esteem building in public schools, teaching even the lo even low-functioning kids with anger problems to judge themselves equal with the valed valedictorian is yet another. But the greatest villain is a church that has accepted the world view that hell, that hell does not await evildoers. With a weak message from a weak church, there is no restraint or lessening of the violence. The shooting at Newtown was immediately followed by a shooting at a Birmingham, Alabama, Alabama hospital and a Las Vegas hotel. Across the country, there are more than 16,000 murders each year. Of those, two-thirds are committed with handguns. One in three, though, one in three murders is a very personal, vile act of evil using a knife, a blunt instrument, or bare hands. And the response of the church to this violence is, God loves you, have a nice day. A large advertising sign near my home reads, uh, quoting the sign, a church for those who don't like church, end quote. Translation, no condemnation of sin. Here we have coffee latte and great music. How about this, <laughs> how about this politically incorrect sermon subject? Imagine this, you see this on a marquee outside of a church, okay? Can you imagine? You can't, right? Here, here it says, how about this, right? Um, on a marquee somewhere in front of a church. Um, An angry God condemns the carnal sin of Adam Lanza, the Newtown school shooter who killed 26, and he will rot in eternal torment in hell, as do all those who turn their backs on God and his goodness and continue, continue their wicked and sinful ways. He said, no way you're going to see that ever in America these days. No number of gun control laws can contain the, uh, the evil that has been let loose in America. Not even black-clad police with masks and automatic weapons can maintain social order in our out-of-control society. The nation needs a religious revival to steer it away from certain moral destruction. That revival will not come from feel-good coffeehouse sermons that do not call sin what it is. What are preachers today offering to save people from if sin is never mentioned? What punishment are they being saved from if hell is never mentioned? The fear of an angry and vengeful God was far more likely to have stopped the shooting in Newtown than the warm voice of a psychologist or the soothing feeling of drugs. Eternity, he said, in hell is a very long time. One of the greatest revival sermons of all times, he said, was that of Jonathan Edwards. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, right? How'd you like to see that in the marquee out in front of a church? Today's message, sinners in the hands of an angry God. How many think would go down the street to 10 ways to achieve financial success on the marquee? That's the church that's going to be full. But sinners in the hands of an angry God is an American classic. If you go online and read what happened that day, is amazing. I did a whole sermon on that sermon because it was such a pivotal sermon in our history anyways sinners in the hands of an angry god he said can you imagine even this one portion being repeated in a church in america today uh, in that sermon edward said and he quotes a small part of the message this is edwards now speaking there is no want of power in god to cast wicked men into hell into hell at any moment Men's hands cannot be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him. 
nor can any deliver out of his hand. He is not only able to cast wicked men into hell, but he can most easily do it, end quote. Well, someone commenting on that statement said, and I quote, God is not in the business of saving evil nations from themselves, but he is in the business of offering salvation to individuals. A nation is saved from ruin when enough of its people turn from their wicked ways and follow his righteous commands. The challenge to every church, every church of every denomination is to preach the true word of God, the nature of sin, and the consequences of, of, perpetu of perpetrating evil. This alone can turn the society away from its violent and destructive path, end quote. Well, that's true. But remember what Paul the Apostle said in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed, unbelievers? How sh uh, and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And, and Paul, a good preacher, a preacher that teaches the truth, right? I mean, folks, where are the Jonathan Edwards? And John the Baptist today, where are they today? No-nonsense fire and brimstone preachers. And by the way, you can preach fire and brimstone in love. Jesus was the first hellfire and damnation preacher in the history of the church. He spoke about hell more than he talked about heaven or even love. But he always did it with love and compassion. And he talked about hell so much because he didn't want to see anyone go there. And so again, my question is, where are the no-nonsense fire and brimstone preachers that operate as the moral conscience of a nation while acting as prophets calling a wayward people back to God? Well, they're out there. We have many men in pulpits who do teach the truth uh, and teach Bible studies, women who teach Bible studies and in truth. Thank God that we still have in this country men and women who love the Lord. But I think we are entering into the time that, that God prophesied, I think through Hosea, uh, I could be wrong, where God said there's coming a time when there will be a famine in the land, but not a famine for food or water, but a famine from hearing my word. With regard to talking about hell and preaching about hell and so on, someone has said, I don't think we should frighten people into heaven. Oh, how spiritual, how righteous you are. Well, I don't think we should frighten people into heaven. Would you rather comfort them into hell? James said, look, save some by compassion, others with fear. Just get them saved. You know, put your arm around some and have compassion, and to others, and I'm just speaking metaphorically, you'd be like Nehemiah, grab him by the beard, shake him around, get right with God. Now, we wouldn't want to do that literally. People frown on that, but I'm just saying. There is, you know, you, you, you save some with compassion, others with fear, but you know what you do, it, it, you have to do to save them from hell. Look, we've all heard this quote. Let me read it to you, though. In the uh, 1830s, the noted French sociologist and political theorist, Alexis de Tocqueville, came to America to discover the secret of our greatness. You know this. He noted in his journal, I'm reading his words, 
The Americans combine the notion of Christianity and of liberty so intimately in their minds that it is impossible to make them conceive of the one without the other. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and ample rivers, but it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless prairies, but it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. It was not until I went to the churches of America and heard their, their pulpits, his words, aflame with righteousness, did I understand the secret of her greatness and power. Returning to France, he summarized his findings this way. He said, America is great because America is good. And if the day should ever come when America stops being good, she will cease being great. Those words are becoming more and more prophetic, aren't they? Look, let me read you one more quote, and I appreciate your patience. A lot of quotes today, but I felt like I wanted to give you a, a broad understanding of what others are saying and, and about what we're going through as a nation. I mentioned earlier the Columbine shooting of 1999 that seemed to start this whole horrible uh, school shootings. Let me read to you this. On Thursday, May 27, 1999, Daryl Scott, the father of Rachel Scott, a victim of the Columbine High School shootings in Littleton, Colorado, was invited to address the House Judiciary Committee subcommittee. The following is a portion of the transcript. Here's Daryl Scott's, uh, uh, Scott's own words. He said, and I quote, Since the dawn of creation, there has been both good and evil in the hearts of men and women. We all contain the seeds of kindness or the seeds of violence. The death of my wonderful daughter, Rachel Joy Scott, and the deaths of the heroic teacher and others and the other 11 children who died must not be in vain. Their blood cries out for answers. The first recorded act of violence was when Cain slew his brother Abel out in the field. The villain was not the club he used, neither was it the NCA, the National Club Association. He said the true killer was Cain, and the reason for the murder could only be found in Cain's heart. In the days that followed the Columbine tragedy, I was amazed at how quickly fingers began to be pointed at groups like the NRA. Now, I'm not an NRA member. I am not a hunter. I do not even own a gun. I am not here to represent or defend the NRA because I don't think they have any, they are, they, I don't believe they are responsible for my daughter's death. Therefore, I do not believe they need to be defended. If I did believe that they had any, anything to do with Rachel's murder, I would be their strongest opponent. I am here today to declare that Columbine was not just a tragedy. Listen, folks, it was a spiritual event that should be forcing us to look at where the real blame lies. He said much of the blame lies here in this room, speaking to these politicians he was facing. Much of the blame lies behind the pointing of fingers of the accusers themselves. I wrote a poem just four nights ago that expresses my feelings best. It was written before I knew I would be speaking here today. The poem goes this way, your laws, Congress, your laws ignore our deepest needs, your words are empty air. You've stripped away our heritage, you've outlawed simple prayer. Now gunshots fill our classrooms and precious children die. You seek for answers everywhere and ask the question, why? 
you regulate, you regulate restrictive laws through legislative creed, and yet you fail to understand that God is what we need. He goes on, spiritual influences were present within our educational system for most of our nation's history. Many of our major colleges began as theological seminaries. That's true. Harvard, uh, Princeton, Yale were all founded to teach men to go into ministry. What has happened to us as a nation? We have refused to honor God. And in so doing, we open the doors to hatred and violence. Do, we do not need more restrictive laws. Eric and Dylan would uh, not have been stopped by metal detectors. No, no amount of gun laws can stop someone who, who spends months planning this type of massacre. He said the real villain lies within our own hearts. Political posturing and restrictive legislation are not the answers. We need a change of heart. He's speaking to us as a culture, as a country. We need a change of heart and a humble acknowledgement that this nation was founded on the principle of simple trust in God, end quote. And so one more time, Psalm 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Uh, I don't know if the foundations of our nation have been completely destroyed. I doubt it because there are still Christians in America, and we still hear the word of God being preached from pulpits and on TV and radio. I don't know if we'll ever regain the former glory we once had as a nation with regard to our love for God and so on. Um, I'm willing to try to see our country return to some of that former glory, right? Um, I'll, I'll share with you um, two scriptures, and then we'll close. The first one is, uh, is Joel 2, out of Joel chapter 2. I, mean, I don't know if America can go back to the glory days it once enjoyed in our nation's early days, founding period. But if you want to fight for America, here's where we need to start. We, as the people of God. Joel 2. And both of these scriptures were given by God uh, through prophets at a time when Israel was at a very low point spiritually and morally, a lot of corruption, a lot of evil, a lot of idolatry, uh, uh, immorality, and even child sacrifice. And yet God was offering them a way by which they might avert the judgment that was coming. Joel 2, verse 12. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend or tear your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing instead of judgment behind? And of course, we must visit Second Chronicles 7. We're on this subject. Second Chronicles 7, verse 14. If my people, this is not a promise to unbelievers. It's a promise to the people of God. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven their prayers and will forgive their sins and heal their land. 
Folks, don't let religion confuse you that something good is going on. I'm talking about Christian religion. Some people think we're fine because look at all the megachurches in America. We must be right with God. Look at the churches he's blessing. Do you know in Israel's history, for many years, the temple was closed down? They had kings on the throne that didn't care about the worship of God, so they let the temple fall into disrepair, and it hadn't been used in years. Until Josiah, uh, a, a very young king who had a heart for God, decided that it was time to open the temple, refurbish it, and start the worship of God again, which he did. And to the average person, it looked like a big revival broke out. I mean, the temple was full all the time. But God said to Jeremiah, you go down to the temple. You stand before it, and you tell my people, don't say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are we. Because God said, I see your hearts. This is a novelty. This is something new. Like when people go to church because they're doing skits and new things and creative things and not teaching the word because that really isn't what's going to get people into church and keep them in church, just the Bible. we to do new things, right? So this is a new thing in Israel's history. That, this, that generation had never been in the temple. And a wave of religion swept over them. But God said, I see the heart. This is not true re repentance and true revival. It is empty religious practices. And God said, if you do not repent in truth, you will be destroyed. Judgment is coming. Right? Let me just end by saying this. We need revival. There's no hope for America without revival. People say, well, what can we do to bring revival? That's a good question. Good question. Years ago, there was a revivalist, um, many years ago, in the 1800s. And um, he went all over, his name was Gypsy Smith. He went all over the world preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And wherever he went, wherever there were Christians, revival broke out. He comes back to the States and was in an area where there was a town that wanted desperately to see revival. And so the pastors and the, and the uh, town uh, leaders got together and went to see Gypsy Smith. And they said, Mr. Smith, we desperately want to see revival in our town. What do we need to do to see it happen? And Gypsy Smith wisely said, you go home, take a piece of chalk, and draw a circle on the floor of your bedroom, by your bed. Then kneel in that circle, and you pray fervently and continually that God would bring revival into that circle. And if your whole town does that, your town will, will experience revival. Folks, revival is not a mass movement. It's an individual thing. We must humble ourselves individually before God. And that is done by seeking him, examining ourselves, acknowledging our sin, our carnality, compromise, and kneeling before God constantly and saying, God, I am a carnal person. I don't want to be a carnal person. I want to be a person who loves you with all my heart. I want to be a person filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to be a light in this dark world.
And if your heart is really there, God will respond. He will respond. And if enough people do that, if there's enough points of light, pretty soon they start to connect. And where there was once darkness, there is now light. The light of God, right? We need this. Otherwise, the nation we have grown up with, and I'm not overstating this to be melodramatic, is going to be gone. How much time do we have left? I don't know. If I was a betting man, I'd say not long. May God give us mercy. Father, we thank you that you are a God of mercy. We deserve judgment, Lord, but we pray for mercy. That, Lord, you would be merciful, first of all, to your people called by your name. That, Lord, you would pour upon us a spirit of brokenness, intercession, and prayer that would cause us to see ourselves honestly, to see what you see, Lord, a compromise and carnality, that we would see ourselves honestly, fall on our faces before you, confessing our sins and reporting for duty. Here am I, as Isaiah said, send me into this dark culture to be a light. Give us, Lord, a great outpouring of your spirit upon your church. Do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or think. Father, we give our lives to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would do a work in this country through your people like we have never, ever seen before, before it's too late. Lord, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.